Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva, and today we have a fascinating book to consider. Professor Michael Hadarkovsky of Loyola University is with me to discuss his new book, Russia's 20th Century, A Journey in 100 Histories. In addition to Professor Hadarkovsky's distinguished academic career, he's also a very active and eloquent opinion contributor to the New York Times about matters related to Russia, so I'm sure we're going to have a very interesting discussion. Russia's 20th Century is a fascinating approach to dissecting the Soviet century, which I think is an exercise in frustration for academics and really a Sisyphusian task for the layman. And that's where this thin but incredibly powerful book comes into play. Professor Hudakovsky has taken a novel approach by crafting 100 vignettes, one for each year of the century. Each of them examines a very specific incident, be it in history, art, politics, science, current relations, or international relations. Taken separately, each is a very vivid and cogent window into the very strange world of the Soviet Union. But when one considers them as a whole, they present an incredibly compelling narrative, which allows us to consider the entire Soviet century from a fresh perspective. More importantly, I think several important themes come into the fore, which helps us to better understand the arc of this cruel century. I'm really looking forward to discussing these with Professor Hudarkovsky, and it gives me such great pleasure to welcome him to the podcast. Welcome, Professor Hudarkovsky. Thank you, Jennifer. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Before we begin, uh, I wonder if you could take our listeners through your academic background and how you came to the study of Russian history. Well, I emigrated from the Soviet Union. The year was 1978 when I left uh, the country. And um, I always wanted to study history uh, since I was 17 or so. Uh, But in the Soviet Union, this was not uh, an easy thing to do. You had to have connections. Uh, You had to have uh, maybe uh, be able to bribe someone. History departments were these privileged departments that essentially bred the communist elite. It was not just history teachers and history professors, but uh, sort of like in the West, if you want to have a political career, you'll go to a law school uh, as a good jumping board, a path towards politics. Uh, That's what history did. In fact, even today, if you look at some politicians, uh, many of them have history background. Some of them have law background as well. So, um, in fact, this was one of the reasons why I left the country. And when I came to uh, to the United States, in fact, it was Chicago, after doing all kinds of menial jobs for a year, I decided I will try to do what I actually always wanted to do, despite uh, uh, various advice from uh, likewise immigrants like myself who said, no, when you come to America, you have to make money. Why would you go into history? <laughs> so eventually I decided, yes, that's exactly what I'll do. And I was lucky enough to be accepted at the University of Chicago. And this is where I went to graduate school. Uh, and uh, uh, this is where I studied Russian history. Mm, so it was kind of a natural choice for me to do so. But with a few caveats, I... Uh, mm, couldn't study at that time. I, I knew it. I was conscious of it. I couldn't study the 20th century. I couldn't study the Soviet Union. It was too raw for me. The feelings, uh, and mostly, of course, negative feelings, were too raw and painful. And I knew that to be a historian, of course, you have to be objective. Otherwise, you are uh, a publicist, sort of a, a public opinion uh, spinner, maybe, or whatever you are, but you're not a historian. And uh, so I went, I decided I will do Russian history, but I'll 
go into earlier centuries. And this is how I started as an early modern Russian historian. And then another thing I thought, you know, I don't want anyone to hold it against me that to say that, oh, yeah, it was easy for you because Russian is your native language. And so, of course, you didn't have uh, uh, to study much the language. It's easier for you. And so uh, this and other consideration, that is the choice of the topics that I chose to study, led me to study also Turkish language and uh, to study the Middle East in general. Uh, and that was a very uh, good decision, I could say, in, in retrospect, and changed my perspectives, my life in many ways, and so on. And this, this is how I you know, started my career here um, uh, and uh, continued. Right. And you've written a number of books on what I, what I refer to as, as the sort of the edges of the empire. Um, you've written about some ethnic minorities. Do you want to take us through a couple of those books? Because 20th century is very different from your other books, I think. It is very different indeed, yes. So most of my focus, uh, uh, scholarly focus, was on, as you put it correctly, on the edges, peripheries of the empire, uh, of course, sometimes it's hard to say what is periphery, what is the center, because 100 years later, what was periphery people regard as the center, such as some central parts of Russia now, uh, let's say along the middle Volga River in Tatarstan or in the uh, North Caucasus, the area called Krasnodar region. Uh, if you ask an average Russian, uh, uh, they will say, of course, these are you know uh, Russian regions from... Uh, time immemorial, but of course they were conquered and became Russian in the consciousness of the people only recently, particularly the, the Krasnodar, North Caucasus area, only in the 19th century after ethnic cleansing, we can call it today definitely, uh, of the region from the indigenous population. Uh, so I was always interested in non, uh, or more interested in the, in the Russian empire as such but a non-Russian component of the Russian Empire. Because when people mention the Russian Empire, they actually forget that by early 20th century, 56% of the population of the Russian Empire were non-Russians. So ethnic Russians were still an absolute majority. But if you take all other non-Russian peoples together, they they were in majority. Uh, and so, obviously, you want to understand uh, who these people were and, and uh, uh, how, did, how were they integrated or not into the Russian Empire. And so my interest was particularly on kind of an Asian, Eurasian-Asian uh, frontiers of a Russian Empire. Uh, that is, Russia, how Russia expanded into uh, what we call today Central Asia, into the Caucasus, into Siberia, not to the West where today would be Poland or Finland, which were parts of the Russian Empire in the old days, but uh, in this particular areas of South and uh, uh, East. And uh, so my uh, first book was very specific, like typical academic book. It was focused on the Russian state and the Kalmyk people, uh, a peculiar group of people who are Tibetan Buddhists, and they still form a republic within the Russian Federation today. And in fact, this is where I went to study when I was in college in the Soviet Union, uh, because as a, uh, a Jew, 
uh, in the 1970s, it was impossible to get into any uh, reasonably well-known central university. So many people like me chose to travel to peripheries uh, because there the issue was more whether you're a Kalmyk belonging to this indigenous group. And if you were not, then you become a Russian. It was, it was not much. It was almost like in the old Soviet joke when there was an, uh, an, um, an, uh, an uh, advertisement in the newspaper and it said, Comrade Jews, if you want to become Russian, immigrate to Israel. <laughs> uh, so this was pretty much uh, on target. Oh, so uh, this is I went to uh, college, uh, university, which was probably one of the uh, least, uh, how shall I say, to be polite, uh, least developed universities. Uh-huh. <laughs> it became a university only recently. And it was um, uh, in a very remote place of, of Russia. Um, and I spent five years there. But anyway, this actually became a very interesting uh, uh, topic of my research because that's where I turned to, uh, to do my first dissertation and the book, writing about these people um, and essentially reframing the entire concept that was, at the time, was the uh, major historiographic concept in in the Soviet Union, that is, that all these peoples were not conquered by Russia, but they voluntarily became subjects of the great and benevolent Russians. I see. (laughs) And uh, uh, it, it of course, sounded already silly and questionable, but uh, one had to show uh, how, in fact, it was wrong and why it was wrong and so on. And from there, I traveled to another, to a more general topic, which I dare say, became a classic in Russian historiography today. And that's a book called Russia's Step Frontier, the making of a colonial empire um, from 1500 to 1800s. And that basically uh, was a book uh, that um, conceptualized the, the notion of a frontier in Russian history. Just to give you a very quick example to your listeners, I will say this. <clears throat> Uh, we know that in American history, in U.S. history, Western frontier is a huge concept, right? It's both a concept and a myth. Without Hollywood, uh, uh, without so you know so much we know about the West, we would be uh, we know all about this. But what uh, struck me when I began to approach this uh, topics, what struck me that in Russia. There was a similar frontier. There was frontier in the south and southeast where uh, Russia faced all these nomadic, semi-nomadic people such as Kazakhs today uh, or uh, Kalmyks or Kyrgyz or numerous other peoples. Um, It was never conceptualized as such. No one ever thought about it. No one called it as uh, uh, such. It, It never occupied a role that it should have occupied in Russian historiography. And so I wrote this book, which essentially introduced this notion of a similar frontier in Russia. Uh, And then I turned my eyes toward a different region um, to write a book on the history of Russia's conquest of the North Caucasus in the 19th century. And that was, that was the book uh, was also written in a, uh, untypical, unusual historical genre through the eyes of one particular individual. Um, I found information about him in the Russian archives. And it was a fascinating individual because he grew up 
in Russia as a, as a Russian, um, will become a, an officer in the Russian army. But when you start digging deeper, you realize he was also a native. He was a Chechen whose father was given as a hostage to the Russians. And so he grew up in Russia, but he actually spent several years in his native, in his father's native village, uh, four years there. And he was fluent in Chechen and Arabic and Kumak, another language of the, of the region, and became an indispensable translator. But he was a witness to the, uh, 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 the brutality of the Russian conquest on the one hand, as he was an, a translated and an, translated an officer in the army. And at the same time, of course, he understood and, and had empathy for the people on the other side. And so he eventually, he was, so this is this tormented individual who has dual identity and is trying to decide who he is, in fact. Um, and in the end, he deserted Russian army, not once, but twice. And um, anyway, those who are interested may read about it. But the point of it is that it allowed me to present the the history of the Russian conquest from both sides, from the sides of the indigenous people, how they perceived it, and of course, the more traditional side of the Russian Russian empire. So these were my previous books before I uh, decided to turn to the 20th century. And I can tell you about it more if you're interested or... Absolutely, please, because you seem to have made a, a career of telling history in very unconventional ways, and certainly Russia's 20th century is, is, is anything but conventional. But how did you come to the format that, that is, works so very well in this book? Well, thank you. I'm glad uh, if it worked. Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, let me mention that I choose different genres because I want to reach a broader audience. Um, it is fine, of course, to write uh, highly scholarly books that are read by your colleagues, uh, 12 people in the field, 20 people <laughs> in the field, maybe. Uh, and it's fine. This is how knowledge is produced. It's incremental and it's very often it's very uh, narrow. And, but at some point, somebody also has to try to synthesize this and to uh, disseminate it to a larger audience. And so at some, at some point, I was not happy just writing for a small group of colleagues and wanted to reach an educated, uh, a curious public. And so I chose different genres to, to do that. Um, this one is actually was very simple. One day I stopped at the, I uh, came, came across a uh, book by uh, uh, a well-known German uh, uh, writer, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Günther Grass. Yeah, Danke, Danke. Günther Grass, a good uh, German writer, Nobel Prize winner. Yeah. Uh, and the book was called My 20th Century. Um, and this is how he, of course, this was a work of fiction, but this is how he structured it. Every year was a little story, a little different story from um, uh, different individuals. Um, most of them were fictional. I mean, they were related to real events, but most of them were fictional. And it occurred to me, I thought, my goodness, why can't I, perhaps I can write a book in this way as well that will um, capture the history of Russia uh, in the 20th century. And it will not be another sort of a traditional narrative where you discuss what happened in the economy and then what happened in politics and how things developed and so on. 
Mm, there are many of those, and, and some of them are very good. But uh, do it in a way that, again, a general, uh, intelligent, and curious, educated person can reach and say, this is interesting. I, I, I've never heard of this before, and I learned a lot about Russia from a different perspective. So that was, that's how it came about. And, and I'm curious, how did you go about choosing the vignettes? Uh, because as you say, some of them are well-known incidents and others are completely new for me. Um, and I think for many of your future readers. Yes. What was your methodology? Um, methodology was no methodology. <laughs> well, I'm being a little uh, uh, sarcastic here. Um, no, there, uh, I have to step back and tell you something else. So there was another reason why I chose to write about the 20th century. Um, some people um, write autobiographies, and some people choose to do it early on, like our former President Barack Obama. Um, and um, uh, I did, I wanted to, I, I reached a certain age, I guess, where I look more and more back onto my past, into my own life. And, and what happened uh, uh, during my 23 years of life in the Soviet Union. And, and, um, and I wanted to look again at the events that I lived through, at the stories with which I grew up. But now, 40 years later or so, as a professional historian. And in some sense, it's a kind of a therapeutic experience of writing something uh, short of autobiography, uh, which I'm not interested in writing at this point, maybe when I am 85, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, look at my life, but through the eyes of history. And so in some ways, the vignettes that I chose were related to uh, the stories I heard, the uh, uh, stories I grew up with, uh, the events I lived through. For example, uh, um, there's one story, I think it's 1931, about Pavlik Morozov, this uh, Russian Soviet boy who becomes a, a hero in the Soviet mythology, right? Um, and what, what's his virtue? He is essentially betraying his father, who was hoarding uh, grain during the collectivization. When, uh, um, the Communist Party tried to put all the peasants into collective farms and they were expropriating the grain and so on. And he tr essentially reports his father to the authorities. His father is arrested and eventually sent to camps and executed, dies. Uh, and he becomes a hero uh, to, uh, that the Soviet children are supposed to emulate. And I went to school <laughs> in Kiev, where I grew up, the capital of Ukraine, uh, which was right next to a square, a little uh, a guard, a public uh, square, which was called Public Morozov Square, and there was a monument to him. And of course, and, uh, and of course, in, in the school, he was also mentioned. And so, on. and so I thought, you know, I should write about this. I should mention this because it's hard to imagine for people who are not familiar with either Russian history too well or Russia in general, what uh, uh, you know? What does it tell you about the country where which tries to um, uh, d uh, drive a wedge between 
generations within one family uh, uh, and then making it a hero. I mean, this, of course, we have other examples of this cultural revolution in China was similar and so on, uh, but it didn't last as long as Pavlik Morozov remained a hero since 1930s until 1980s when they sort of slowly started rewriting so things like this, uh, and there were some, I came across various stories that simply are not very well known, such as the uh, nuclear exercise that the Soviets yes. conducted. Yes, um, I'm glad you mentioned that, because that was a real shock to me. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And, and so, <laughs> tell, tell it. Well, this was, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, but I cannot exactly remember which year was which. So this was 1950s. Uh, 1954, yeah, yeah. nuclear war exercise snowball. And essentially, uh, the Soviet uh, party and military officials decided to test whether nuclear weapons could be incorporated into the battlefield. And uh, and they actually used real nuclear weapons, nuclear uh, dropping real nuclear bomb, sending the uh, divisions of Soviet troops into the battlefield and the tanks and so on after that without telling them that uh, actually the uh, this was a real nuclear weapon. They said it was just a test uh, and this is fake and so on. Uh, and, uh, you know, the result was, I mean, all of this was, the results were all hidden uh, and kept secret. We still don't know the, the full data. Uh, we do know that several villages were, uh, had to be evacuated. All the medical records were erased um, uh, uh, some people reported, you know, uh, hundreds of dead bodies of soldiers uh, shipped on the train, but we don't have the exact, uh, there's no archival record of all these events. But just, you know, to, to think about it, what the government at the time was capable of and what they did and what they thought, uh, this is a story that is very little known, uh, even among Russian historians. So I thought this was would be good to talk about. Absolutely. And I think that that theme of uh, the sort of the government's inability to have a concern and a care uh, for the for its citizens um, and its ability to, its willingness to keep secrets from them re- recurs again and again um, throughout this book and throughout some of the vignettes. Um, and that's just one of the recurring themes. I think uh, one that really jumps out at one right away and and keeps going all the way through is the just the horrific human cost of this Soviet experiment it re- recurring again and again um, I think some of the the events that stood out for me were the vignette about the Bellamore Canal as well the siege of Leningrad and and also this um, 1959 census that's a more dry kind of bureaucratic story but with horrific numbers um, and I wonder, did, did that sort of occur to you that this was um, kind of coming up again and again as you put these vignettes together? Well, not only it occurred to me, I mean, the, the, uh, this was part of the design, mm. uh, to exactly that, to show the uh, uh, an extraordinary, truly extraordinary by all circumstances, by all measures, human toll of uh, uh, the Soviet experience. Uh, because sometimes, you know, among many colleagues, those particularly on the left, 
you can hear less so now, but for many years you could hear the refrain that yes, of course we know that there were victims and Stalinism was bad, but look at the achievements of the Soviet Union. It industrialized, it became a major country, uh, uh, the superpower, uh, it educated this population, and so on and so forth. And I wanted to show essentially um, and argue with this line of thought and to say that um, None of this, and this is actually all very questionable, what kind of industrialization, what kind of education, how it was done. But even if we accept it, none of this justifies the enormity of a human tragedy, of a human toll, that uh, the cost at which all of this was done. Uh, and uh, the numbers are there, the numbers are damning, but it's more than numbers, it's, it's how it affects people. It's how people... Uh, uh, what kind of a person emerges from this environment. And it, in the end, actually, I wanted to make sure that somebody who reads it will understand today's Russia better. Because some of the issues that we see today are going all the way back to uh, the Soviet century, particularly after President Putin became a president in the last two decades, in many ways, he is a product of the Soviet uh, uh, Union, one of the uh, worst products in terms of uh, uh, coming from the secret police, from KGB himself, retaining that mentality uh, and now imposing it on, on the rest of the country in kind of a, uh, in the most sophisticated way. Um, but um, uh, many other things that uh, evolved into similar forms and they express differently <clears throat> but they still continuation of that uh, of that mentality of that psychology and so on. just the other day i can give you an example just the other day uh the patriarch of the russian orthodox church that's the highest religious authority said something uh, uh interesting he said the sin of liberalism is lies in the fact that it puts a human being uh, uh, and, uh, um, and humanity at the center of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's funny you should mention that. My husband just picked up on that um, as well. We were talking about that, I think, last uh -huh. night. Um, yeah, no, it's a fascinating, because it, it, it gets to the heart of the whole, exactly. the, the whole Soviet mentality, but also the fact that Russia misses out on so much of that, you know, yes, the, the person is at the center. Um, and that comes through as well through, throughout your book, that, that the individual is not as important as the whole, as the collective. Well, it's not, not just important. It, uh, it was simply um, uh, the, the role of individual was to sacrifice himself or herself for the uh, uh, glory of the state. And the state, of course, uh, eventually was the, the power elites, the Communist Party. I mean, that's how they interpreted the state. Just like, what is the state today? You know, the Russian media often uh, uh, trumps, trumpets the same theme that, you know, we, we want Russia to be great, Russia great again uh, in some ways and so on. Uh, but but what is Russia great? What kind of Russia? It's Putin's Russia and those who, those small group that control it. Um, yeah. 
You know, that's, I, I think that's right. And I think that throughout the book, there are moments when the reader finds himself just shivering because it's so frightening. And yet there are also moments where you kind of throw it up as, as almost laughable when the state is just so out of touch <laughs> with the needs or the desires mm-hmm. of its citizens. I think particularly towards the end um, in the 80s, uh, we highlight some of those for the readers because I thought they were really well done. And uh, one could sense that you were drawing on some of your own um, personal experiences there. Yeah, I mean, the state was always out of touch, and some you can say in some ways, you know, the most this famous. Uh, 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 um, well, it was it was out of touch. There are two ways to be out of touch. One was out of touch in reality, that is not realizing truly what's going on, and the other is more uh, dangerous out of touch when it's a cynical out of touch, deliberate out of touch, uh, such as when Stalin. Uh, uh, pronounces in the middle of the purges when uh, tens of thousands of people are arrested and executed, and he uh, declares that comrades' life has become better, life has become merrier. Uh, you know, this is so there, it's uh, this is not just out of touch, not understanding the uh, what's going on. This is the degree of cynicism that is also a a uh, Mm, uh, a, a line that goes through the entire 20th century into the current situation in Russia uh, uh, that is uh, very dangerous and very disturbing uh, uh, and particularly disturbing because I see it uh, more and more in today's in today's Russia in, in, in how the uh, Putin's um, authorities, uh, deal with various situations, what they say and what they do. It's an extraordinary degree of cynicism. Right. And I, I think that's a good good moment to ask you uh, about another theme that runs through the book, which is the struggle of ethnic minorities in general, but you also, you kind of laser in on Ukraine as uh, an ethnic minority that's trying to achieve autonomy throughout the century and Russia just doggedly refusing to allow that to happen. I think it's very timely uh, given what we're we're seeing in the news every night. And I can't resist the temptation uh, not to ask you about um, uh, how you see uh, what's going on today as an echo of of what you explore in in the book, uh, particularly with regard to Ukraine, but also other ethnic minorities that you've been studying. Mm. Well, let me let me say it first. Um, you know, your readers probably don't know that uh, the 1936 Constitution, which was the uh, kind of a fundamental, basic Constitution, which uh, was changed only a little in the in the next Constitution in the 70s, uh, actually gave uh, uh, the republics, the composite republics of the Soviet Union. There were uh, 12 of them at that time, or 11, eventually it'll be 15 after World War II, uh, the right for self-determination and the right to secede. And it was done essentially in the the climate of the 30s, partly because uh, Stalin wanted to show the West that, you know, we have a great democratic country here, Uh, all the complaints about about us are, are not true, and partly, of course, most importantly, because... Stalin thought it was just a piece of paper and it doesn't matter. Uh, this this has no, you know. So many things were put on paper there. The right to uh, 
there was a freedom of speech and the, and the freedom of assembly, essentially, in the Soviet Constitution. And, of course, we know that none of this existed in reality. So, um, ironically, it's this, it's this clause that became the legal precedent for the dis- dissolution of the Soviet Union. So, in 1991, when the Soviet Union fell apart, it fell apart along this national lines. Out of one country emerged 15 sovereign uh, states. Now, uh, these national issues, this national tension, uh, ethnic tension, was always there. But it was always swept under the rug. And there's, there is a reason why uh, uh, topics like the, the, what I described to you in my first book about the about the uh, relationship between the Russian state and the Kalmyk people in the 17th, 18th century. Topics like this essentially were taboos. If you were a Soviet historian and you wanted to work in this in the Soviet archives, you will not be given access to the documents. Because if you read the documents, it will become clear that the official thesis of, uh, 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 of the Soviet government and the Soviet historians was friendship of people. The Soviet Union was a a family, and and they were all uh, friendly to each other, eternal friendship of peoples. Uh, but reality was always very different. There was a lot of uh, a lot of unsolved problems between different ethnic groups, a lot of hostility that was um, uh, sort of swept under the rug, but never dealt with. And uh, um, um, at different times, these things came out, but they were suppressed and repressed. People were arrested uh, in Ukraine, in Georgia, uh, in uh, uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, they were always uh, in Tatarstan, within Russia. They were always uh, nationalists, what we'll call them, nationalist uh, groups and people who wanted uh, more room for their cultural identity. Uh, and all of this was seen as a threat to the Soviet regime. Uh, so when the 1980s um, uh, happened and uh, some kind of a um, uh, liberalization happened under Gorbachev, all these things came to the fore very quickly, and all there, there a lot of uh, ethnic and national tension le- leading to violence in many regions in, in, in the Caucasus, uh, uh, particularly, and uh, and the Soviet Union fell apart. Uh, precisely because of it. So the this uh, uh, the notion that the Soviet Union was a very complex uh, empire, we can say today definitely, uh, that was composed of so many different ethnic uh, and national groups, I should say probably religious as well, except religion was uh, quite successfully suppressed in most of the cases by throughout the years of Soviet experience. Uh, uh, all of this was not studied enough, either certainly not in the Soviet Union and also not in the West. Somehow many Western historians bought into the Soviet line and they studied mostly Russians and they studied the working people, working class and so on. Um, So this was a very uh, important topic. In fact, the key to understanding uh, what was going on in the Soviet Union and, and why it collapsed. I, what was the initial question again, Jennifer? I, 
<laughs> well, I'm sort of, um, I, I see in your book um, again and again throughout these vin- vignettes, each sort of decade, there's a moment when Ukraine is struggling to receive, to gain a sort of a better uh, autonomy and Russia just absolutely refusing to allow it. I, you know, I think to, to a certain extent you've, you've answered the question, but I wanted to dig a little deeper and wonder with you where that refusal of Russia comes from. Um, you know, why not? If it's all, if it's all, you know, a great big family, a multi-ethnic, multi-confessional uh, empire, uh, well, not multi-confessional during the Soviet Union, but um, where does that reluctance and stubbornness come from? Okay, so the, uh, <clears throat> yes, <laughs> I got sidetracked a little bit, but not really. I want to, Yes, I wanted to answer your question by putting it in a larger perspective because it was not just Ukraine. Uh, Georgia was always the same. Uh, was always was also the same. The uh, there was always a strong national movement in Georgia, which uh, uh, Moscow refused to allow to go further. Although the dynamics were there uh, different, and Georgia was in a much better position because. Uh, then the lang- national language was always used uh, and was not uh, discouraged, uh, unlike Ukraine. Uh, in the Baltics, the same situation was Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia uh, happened. So Ukraine was was only one of in 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 this kind of a general attitude towards uh, non-Russians. But um, Ukraine was simply more important than other places because after Russia, this was the second largest, both in terms of population, in terms of industrial uh, base, uh, and so on, the second largest republic in the Soviet Union. Um, What is interesting that, you know, once you control everything from the center, as it was done in the Soviet Union, Moscow, Central Committee, Communist Party, everything is decided there. Uh, you rely on certain venues of information. And so on the one hand, you can say that uh, uh, the, the Moscow allowed certain cultural identity in Ukraine to take place. So when I was growing up, there, was a, uh, there were two Ukrainian newspapers that is published in Ukrainian language. There was a Ukrainian radio program. Uh, there were schools, not many, minority, but still there were schools in which you can actually study all these subjects in Ukrainian language. And of course, culturally, they were Ukrainian theaters and dance groups and, and, and so on, the choirs. And that was true for all republics. As Stalin said, we want them to be cultural in form, but socialist in content. So that was the attitude, that was the policy. But the question is, as I said, when things are decided in the center uh, and then somebody reports that, well, uh, there is a growing nationalism here uh, and they decide to clamp down on this, uh, where is that line? Where is the balance? So on many occasions, uh, they decided in Moscow that there is too much cultural identity in Ukraine now, that there is there are too many people who are actually... Uh, who want to speak Ukrainian and they want to more uh, sort of Ukrainian to be more in the center than Russian, and that's dangerous. We need to crack down on this. Uh, so, for example, in the 1960s, I discussed this uh, particular case. Uh, the head of the Ukrainian Communist Party was Mr. Uh, his name was Dmitro Shelest, 
and uh, uh, he built, not far from where I lived, in fact, uh, a palace uh, of, um, uh, of the, of the um, uh, a big concert hall. Uh, and in the Soviet Union, they were called palaces. You know, the Bolsheviks reversed everything. The palaces became the palaces of, uh, for, of for sports, on the palace for wedding, uh, marriages, and so on, sort of uh, uh, reversing the royal Tsarist palaces uh, into the palaces for the workers and peasants, essentially. So this was called the Palace of, I forgot, uh, something, uh, Palace of, of, of the Union, I think it was called. But it was a huge concert hall, uh, assembly hall, and so on. And in Moscow, they decided that this was actually, Shelley's tried to compete with Moscow and build the same huge uh, uh, palace as it was in the Kremlin in Moscow. And this and other things indicated that Shellist was growing too autonomous and moving into nationalist direction. So he was fired, of course, under the pretext of ill health and whatnot, uh, and replaced by a more pro-Russian uh, uh, secretary, communist, uh, secretary of the Communist Party. So things like this, what I'm saying is that um, that uh, Moscow was always concerned because it knew that the there's always uh, there was always a nationalist mood among certain groups of the population, and there was always concerned that this may grow uh, and become anti-Soviet or anti-Russian. And for many people, actually, these two meant the same thing: uh, that the uh, it took time for. This, for the for the Soviets to understand this, um, and uh, uh, so in Ukraine, and of course in Ukraine in particular, the history is um, uh, goes much further. I mean, the, there was a strong Ukrainian independence movement beginning at least from the early twentieth uh, century. Of course, before that was uh, Shevchenko, the national poet, in the nineteenth century, but. After the revolution, Ukraine was independent, sovereign for a very short period of time. I think it was like seven months or so. Um, and um, and why did they want sovereignty? Because in the late 19th century, early 20th century, there was a particularly strong anti-Ukrainian attitude in Tsarist Russia. Ukrainian language was officially banned. Uh, you could not you, you you could not read in Ukrainian. You could you were not supposed to speak Ukrainian and so on. So there is a long history of uh, uh, repressing Ukrainian identity. When the Bolsheviks came to power, they actually recognized it for a short period of time until late 1930s. Uh, and that's why they encouraged national cultural identities among Ukrainians, but among many other peoples. For those who didn't have an identity, they created a written language and, and so on, and among smaller peoples, uh, but um, but when then came World War II, and with that, uh, uh, Soviet Union became Russified. Under Stalin, uh, uh, Russification took place again. The ones the Russification that Stalin condemned um, in the early part when he uh, when the communists came to power in the 1920s, because remember Stalin himself was a Georgian, too, of course. Uh, so he was aware of, of this uh, grievances of non-Russians against the Russians throughout the uh, uh, Russian imperial period. And so he condemned 
Russian Empire, as he called the prison of the peoples, and he condemned Russification. And so throughout the 20s and 30s, this was a period of relative tolerance and encouragement of national identities. But after that, Stalin himself returned to Russification. Uh, and again, I talk about it in some of the vignettes, how it happened and why. And uh, I will leave you at that. It's, it's interesting um, because throughout the book, there are incidents that kind of echo in decades that are maybe three or four decades removed. Um, and I find that there are, um, when I went back to read, to, to read it for a second time, I found a lot of pairings that um, I hadn't really considered before. I mean, I, I don't think I'm the first person to liken the fate of Vladimir Mayakovsky with that of Vladimir Vysotsky. But there were other ones that um, really occurred to me for the first time. And one, one was um, the tercentenary celebrations of the Romanovs in 1913. It has a lot of echoes in the Olympic Games of um, 1980, and then perhaps in the 21st century with the more recent World Cup in, 19, in 2018. Um, because I think that it brings that idea that the state is really out of touch, that it's celebrating this big event, but it doesn't really understand what's going on underneath. Um, are there other pairings that occur to you um, throughout the book? Not immediately, Jennifer, not immediately. But I would say, you know, this is interesting that you mentioned this. Um, I would say that uh, um, there are different, there are some big important differences between, let's say you brought up uh, the 300th anniversary of the Romanov dynasty that was celebrated in 1913. I have a vignette about that. And uh, let's say 1980 Olympics or even more recent uh, 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 soccer championship. Um, the, so the, the uh, uh, Romanov celebration was, of course, a big celebration. And um, uh, there were many events staged everywhere, uh, mostly in Petersburg in the capital and so on. Uh, but it didn't have the same sort of a Soviet quality in the sense that uh, everything was surreal and artificial about the Soviet celebrations, of Soviet uh, big events, like the Olympics, for example. Uh, they cleaned up everything. They, they expelled all the homeless, whatever homeless people, and known thieves were warned not to do anything. Everyone was expelled beyond a certain uh, kilometer of Moscow, that is, to the uh, kind of outside of the city. Uh, the city was completely cleaned up just for this particular event. Uh, they, they delivered more food to the stores during this particular time. You could buy items in the store like chocolates and bananas that you could usually couldn't, and generally the stores were better supplied. So... This kind of a, a, a showing off, this kind of a what would be called Potemkin village. Uh, I don't know your listeners, some of you that may know this. Potemkin village means the, uh, um, you know, the uh, uh, pretending that something exists, creating a facade of something beyond which uh, something actually doesn't exist. So you can clean up the facade of the house that looks very nice, but in fact it's rotting inside. Uh, and Potemkin village that goes to 18th century Russian history, Prince Potemkin. Uh, that is another very typical uh, feature of Russian history that, that goes 
throughout um, you know the centuries, including the Soviet times. So, and I talk about 1980s. What what happened? The extent to which they uh, uh, changed things. Another actually good example was, and I mentioned this when when Nixon visited when Nixon visited Kiev. In 1970, when was it? Uh, 76 or 75. Uh, no, no, Nixon was already gone by that. In 1972 it was. Um, he visited Kiev, and I remember it from my own experience. I was, I was taking a trolley to school. I was in high school. And all of a sudden, I look and I see along the street where there were some old houses, all of a sudden the houses are gone. Uh, uh, those that stayed there were freshly painted. Some trees were, were planted where the houses were. And I thought, am I dreaming? Is something going on? I, what's <laughs> going on? And then a couple of hours later, I heard that uh, they announced to the Soviet citizens that uh, uh, President Nixon was visiting Kiev. And, and I, realized was, I realized what was going on. This was the street, one of the streets along which his cortege was traveling. So to show off <laughs> uh, uh, um, that how great Kiev is and, that, and how developed it is and how everything is fine, uh, they overnight practically, they changed the appearances of the streets. And I was shocked at that time. And now I find it amusing. But this was, of course, a typical feature of this uh, uh, Soviet regime that tried to present itself uh, in a way that it was not. Right, and eventually it just runs out yes, of steam. Yes, exactly right. Because you 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 begin to chart, yeah, the disintegration. Um, and I thought that you did a really a really interesting job with um, the somewhat conflicted character of Boris Yeltsin. I think we're still kind of chewing him over as historians. Um, we're not really sure how to evaluate his his brief, but very, I think, significant um, time in in government. What did you discover that was new about Yeltsin um, in in putting these vignettes together? I think what it's I, I don't think I discovered anything new, quite frankly. Uh, but I present him maybe in a light, uh, in a clearer light, uh, because now we have the uh, privilege of of looking at it more clearly as the time passes by. Um, I think what's remarkable about Yeltsin that he was indeed a revolutionary, a departure from uh, anything else that was in Russia before, in the Soviet Union before. He was um, a genuine Democrat. He encouraged debates. He uh, uh, believed in multiple voices. He had very different people in his own uh, uh, administration. And that was a, a tremendous departure from anything else that um, existed in the Soviet Union or, well, in Russian Empire by the end of it, maybe it was uh, more diversified, but still uh, a departure from this Russian-Soviet uh, tradition. And again, uh, after he was gone, his uh, heir, unfortunately, Mr. Putin comes to power and he goes back to the same old uh, uh, traditions and features of the Russian society that we hoped uh, Yeltsin changed, but in fact, of course, he didn't. Um, so Yeltsin was was remarkable. He was he was also a genuine a genuine human being, sort of from from a, a large age, 
and that means with all the flaws that he had, you know, he was a drunkard. Uh, he was a kind of impulsive uh, person in many ways. Uh, but he was a genuine human being because he really uh, genuinely thought about Russian people. Uh, there is a moment there, uh, I'm trying to recall, when he uh, comes to the United States uh, and, uh, and uh, he visits a supermarket in some uh, average size town, I think in Houston maybe, uh, an average supermarket. And he looks at the shelves and he see, sees what's available. And he's genuinely, this is his uh, um, uh, secretary and translator write, writes about it later in his memoirs. And he genuinely almost begins to cry and says, look, look at this. And what we did, we, what we did to our people, how could we do this to our people? And this uh, was a turning point for him, realizing that, no, things cannot continue like this. We need a really break with the past. We need to do some. And this is, a, again, in sharp contrast to, uh, I would say, to President Putin today, uh, who, of course, uh, you know, the, the well-being of his own people is not the first thing on his mind. On his mind, the first thing is uh, greatness of Russia, geopolitical strength, uh, which appeals to his own uh, personal instincts, and a great deal of corruption. Of course, the billionaires who are, uh, around him who accumulated billions of dollars, that's not uh, about Russian people. You could not say this about uh, Yeltsin. Uh, with, and I don't want to diminish his flaws of all sorts, and I mentioned them, but he was a genuine uh, uh, human being. And, and I think in part because he comes from Siberia. You know, the S Siberians... Have, have always been different uh, in Russia. Uh, it, it was it, people knew this. Those who had counted Siberians knew this. They were always kind of a people of a bigger soul and a bigger character and more honest, uh, more forthcoming. And uh, he comes from Siberia. I think that has something to do. It was it was too far from Moscow, too far from all the intrigues. Uh, and history of Siberia is different. Of course, Serbian never existed in Siberia unlike in parts of Russian Empire. So hmm. that's I hadn't I hadn't considered that. Um and th another thing I hadn't considered that your book has, has brought to mind. But you um you don't end uh, happily uh with this book. You don't leave us with very much optimism at the end of Russia's 20th century. Um you have this very bleak assessment. You say that uh Russia was entering the 21st century in the same basic set of principles and values it had maintained throughout the 20th century, um, which seems a very, um, very pessimistic view, but I think perhaps accurate. Um, what as you've, you've subjected the previous century to intense scrutiny. Um, what do you think you've learned uh, from doing that? Well, there are many lessons. Um, so it's not, it's not Jennifer, it's not pessimistic for the future necessarily. It's, it's actually realistic for, where Russia was in the twenty in the beginning of the twenty first century. That is when I I uh, attached this description to the arrival of Putin. So uh, that doesn't mean that uh, you know in in two thousand twenty five uh, Russia will be the same. It could be a completely different country, or you know, even two thousand twenty two. I don't know. Uh, so I don't have an entirely pessimistic view of Russia. I have a uh, 
uh, um, I think I have a realistic view of Russia in the sense that uh, Putin returned Russia to uh, to its past. There's nothing. There's no future for Russia um, uh, on the on the past it is now. Uh, I mean, if you look at Russia today, what does Russia offer to the rest of the world? Uh, China is is a uh, uh, you can complain about China and we shoot in many different ways, uh, but China is is a, is an, uh, an immense uh, economic power. Lots of manufacturing is taking place in China. Uh, lots of capital is in China. Um, uh, some inventions come from China. I mean, China has uh, a, a role to play. Russia has absolutely nothing to offer at this point except raw materials, gas, oil, and military. It invests now, these days, it invests a lot in the military. Again, uh, forgetting that this is something that bankrupted the, the Soviet Union in the first place. Um, and so that is not the future. And, and everyone knows that, in fact, uh, there are many very talented, very well-educated people in Russia. Russia, uh, for various reasons, um, the Soviet Union invested in education, particularly in technical education. The joke was that every second person in the Soviet Union is an engineer, and that was almost not an exaggeration. Um, it was an over-industrialized society. But these educational institutions remained uh, and so there, there's a lot of uh, uh, potential in Russia. But uh, you look at it and you ask, where is it? And so where is it? Most of the people left. Many people left and prefer to live in Berlin or Riga or uh, U.S. or anywhere, uh, but not to be in Russia because they cannot feel free and, and, uh, uh, in this regime. Uh, and those who stay work in, in very constrained conditions. And so I see Russia, I see quite a bit of potential in Russia, but the political situation and the, it, it will be not in Putin's Russia. It will be in the new and democratic Russia. And I'm not pessimistic. I think it will happen. The, the only question is how it will happen. Either it will happen through violence, because people like Mr. Putin do not give power easily, uh, do not retire peacefully. Um, or it will happen uh, uh, in some kind of a you know, more peaceful transition, for which I hope. Uh, all of this remains to be seen. It's very hard to predict. So it's, it's, not, um, it's not entirely a pessimistic conclusion, but realistic in the sense that when you look at the past, particularly the rush of the 20th century, uh, it's almost a lesson of not to do and how not to do things. And yet, and, and yet, yet it's being it, done again. In many ways, just as Putin it was returned before. Russia to uh, to the past. It's a it's a concern about geopolitics that uh, trumps everything else. Uh, at the same time, as the standard of living is dropping, people are not happy. They continue to invest more in the military and trying to become a great power by putting Russian soldiers in Africa and in Syria. I mean, it's a it's a very short sighted mentality that may appear as a victory uh, for Russia at the moment, but on the long run, it's a recipe for a disaster. Well, may I ask you, um, in putting this, this book together, did you discover anything that was completely new for you? 
about Russian history in the 20th century? Um, if anything, I would say, it's an it's interesting question. Uh, if anything, it just emphasized uh, to me to the extent that I even I was not aware the enormous tragedy of uh, the people's and the people who lived in this region. It's hard to describe. I cannot say Russian people because, of course, the Soviet Union was more than just Russian people. There was 300 million of all sorts. So that this territory, uh, um, that the the damage and the uh, uh, and the damage not not only only is a, is a poor choice of words here, but not only in death and, and mortality and the numbers of millions killed for no reason, innocent people, but also the warped uh, mentality and warped human values in many ways. Uh, and, uh, you know, people grew, lived in a society uh, with a constant um, cognitive dissonance because they heard, they lived in a totalitarian society which controlled all aspects of life from the time you were born and went to a kindergarten to the time you die, you had to uh, abide by mm, the Soviet propaganda, say the right things, do the right things, uh, behave in a certain way. Uh, and at the same time, certainly uh, by 1960s, it became clear that the, the Communist Party members live by different standards. They have special stores. They operate differently. Uh, it became clear that some people live better than others, even though this was supposed to be a socialist society of full equality. I mean, the the mendacity of of this political system, uh, and 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 uh, uh, people who, for the sake of their psychological survival, had to adjust and live with a constantly split personality. All of this has an effect. Uh, uh, a long-term effect on people. And so uh, to me, I think it just, uh, the degree to which this uh, Soviet experiment, we can call it, uh, was a, uh, uh, and I'm not talking only about Stalin's regime, but in some ways a, a crime against humanity, I will even put it this way, in a very broad sense, that to me uh, was some was a new realization after I, I finished writing this book. Wow, that's a big realization, <laughs> a very big one. Um, yeah. Hmm. Let me ask you what um, what are you working on now? Because there's always a lag between you know when a book comes out and you've, you've finished it months ago. You are know, you, I always tell people that's the only thing I know how to do is to write books. If you ask me to nail something to the wall, I won't be able to do it. But I do know how to write books, so that's only that's the only thing I do. But uh, yes, I'm writing a different book, and uh, I return back to my. Uh, uh, more traditional bailiwick, shall we say, and that is a book on comparative empires. And I will um, um, try to suggest that uh, Russia should be understood uh, in the context of the Eurasian empires more so than in the context of European empires. In other words, if we compare Russian empire with the Ottoman empire and uh, Persian Empire and Chinese empires, 
we may uh, understand certain uh, values, political culture, and other things about Russia better than if we uh, compare Russia with France and England. No, that sounds fascinating. And I, I'm not sure it's going to win you a whole bunch of friends in Moscow, but um, certainly I think it will win you a lots of devoted fans over here. I think that's an, an, an ideal topic to be exploring right now. Yeah, I'm not tr- trying to win friends anywhere at this point. Uh, you know, I do think of myself a historian who has to tell uh, the truth as I see it. Uh, people, can, of course, can disagree and uh, that's a whole different matter. That's all debatable. It's perfectly uh, reasonable to debate things. But of course, uh, no, I'm not trying to uh, win friends and to be invited to uh, Mr. Putin's pet projects on, in various cities where he tries to entertain uh, uh, broad circles of people, some intellectual and so on. No, I'm not counting on this. <laughs> okay. in, in fact, I wouldn't, I wouldn't join it anyway. I think that's that's probably wise. Um, listen, tell tell us, um, Professor, where people can find you and your books online. Are you do you, uh, are you on social media? All the books are on Amazon, of course. One can find them, or you can one can purchase them from the publisher. But uh, Amazon, if one doesn't have any particular uh, uh, moral objections to Amazon, <laughs> you know, people have all sorts of views. Uh, then, uh, then they're all there uh, and available. And do you maintain a website or a, no, I a social media? I yep. I don't have a website. Uh, I mean, my my, I have a professional, I guess, a web page. You'll call it on my history department uh, at Loyola University in Chicago. And uh, and of course, pe- people can often find you in the uh, opinion pages of the New York Times, where you write on uh, very compellingly on Russia. Um, I think that's how I first discovered you. Thank you. Yeah, I also wrote for Wall Street Journal, and uh, um, that was a very different experience writing for a more conservative paper. Somehow, um, yeah, I, sometimes I don't know whether I should even mention it because when I look at the op-eds of Wall Street Journal, most of the time they are so utterly, utterly to the right, unreasonable, that I, 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 I even embarrassed to mention that. They published me, but but the paper itself is wonderful. But uh, in terms of news, but the the opinion pages are sometimes uh, questionable from my point of view. But yes, I did write for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I did uh, write for Chicago Tribune, our local paper, several times. I gave some interviews on uh, uh, public radio and other places. So people can. Uh, the easiest way to find me is is to send me an email if somebody's interested. Loyola email address, which is available. All right. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, and I'm sure people will find this um, a great uh, addition to the canon on um, the Soviet century. Again, I think we're still digesting it as um, the general public, as well as historians. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. But I want to thank you for this uh, very thoughtful and, and insightful interview. I will remind listeners that we've been talking to Professor Michael Khodorkovsky of Loyola University about his new book, Russia's 20th Century, A Journey in a Hundred Histories. Jennifer, before we leave, I just wanted to say that uh, it's an old, uh, perhaps slightly banal adage, but it is true. 
that the interview is only as good as the interviewer and the questions <laughs> she or he asks. And I mean it quite seriously. So thank you. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Um, well, I found this a really fascinating read. Um, I think, as I said to you at the beginning of the interview and to the listeners, this is very timely and it's a great insightful look at Russia that will ask you to examine the history of the 20th century in a slightly different way. Um, so thank you very much, uh, Professor, for joining us. Thank you, Jen. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva. And thank you for listening. And I will be back soon with another deep dive uh, with a new author and his or her book. Thanks so much for listening.